Hello and welcome to the Risk.net podcast. My name is Dandy Francesco. I'm a staff writer on the Risk Management Desk. This episode, I'm joined by John Fennell, CRO of Chicago-based clearinghouse, the OCC. John was in New York for a conference he was speaking on and was nice enough to stop into our offices. John and I discussed uh, the biggest news in the clearing industry, which is the NASDAQ breach. Specifically, I got John's take on individual direct clearing members and how a CCP should go about handling it in terms of governance around uh, that person. Also, we discussed auctions and uh, when unwinding one's position in a default scenario, how best to handle auctions and kind of the Goldilocks dilemma of too many or too few people included in the auction. We also discussed changes to the OCC's default fund, which took place last month, how those changes were implemented, what's the latest on the news, and any other plans for changes in their default fund. Then we switched to discussion on margin calculation and OCC's margin calculation, specifically in the wake of some breaches they saw in the first quarter of 2018. And finally, we rounded things out talking about CCP's role in clearing digital currencies. The OCC clears Bitcoin futures contracts for CBOE, and I talked to John about the importance of CCPs when it comes to uh, the rise of digital currency derivatives that we've seen over the past year. All in all, I thought it was a great conversation uh, and definitely of interest for anyone that is involved on the clearing side of things in financial services. John gave some great perspectives as someone that is the head of risk for one of the biggest CCPs in the world. Uh, So without further ado, John Fennell. John, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, great to be here, Dan. So John is in town. He's based in Chicago, but he's in New York, and uh, he was nice enough to take some time out from a, uh, a conference that he's attending to, to chat with us about a bunch of issues. Um, and uh, I thought that would maybe be a good place to start, John, coming from, um, I know you were at a panel talking about uh, navigating liquidity risk as a SIFMU um, in today's regulatory environment. Certainly a topic that uh, you know seems to really have come to the forefront in recent months. Maybe can you talk to us a little bit about some of the stuff that was discussed or some of the issues that were brought up uh, you know, at the conference that you're just coming from? Yeah, sure. So it was a liquidity risk conference, so focused on liquidity risk. And uh, uh, my particular part was uh, in relation to uh, liquidity risk and the resilience of the CCPs. And I, I think one of the points we really wanted to emphasize was around Um, how CCPs mitigate contagion, especially in in a liquidity type of event. We step into the roles of the defaulting member and make sure that we continue to fund so that the uh, downstream uh, participants can receive their payments and so we keep the funds flowing through the the system. Um, A lot of what we talked about was really about how the CCPs uh, stress test and evaluate their liquidity resources under extreme but plausible conditions, uh, how we go about sourcing uh, our reserves for liquidity, uh, and some of the challenges that the regulations have uh, um, caused unintended in an unintended way to uh, translate into some challenges uh, with U.S. CCPs obtaining uh, liquidity. Yeah, may, can you can you touch on um, maybe that that from that regulatory aspect? Maybe some of the you know, like you say, the unintended consequences in terms of kind of handling the liquidity risk that CCPs have to deal with. Yeah, so I'd say one of the regulations that were put in following the financial crisis was the liquidity cover ratio (LCR), and the intent of that was really to make sure that banks who were issuing 
committed credit facilities or, or committed liquidity have sufficient uh, excess reserves on their balance sheet. Uh, when you apply the, that liquidity cover ratio in the context of CCPs, CCPs require a lot of excess reserves committed and something that need to be drawn on in a very short period of time. Um, when you apply those type of criteria into the LCR, they become very balance sheet intensive. And what ends up happening is uh, the supply uh, for committed credit facilities that are available commercially for CCPs, uh, given that we rarely draw on these uh, and they consume a lot of balance sheet, ultimately means the supply is less. Um, so OCC during it, it, this period has been uh, very uh, active in trying to find alternative sources of liquidity uh, outside of bank-based lending. In fact, we, we are the first CCP to secure a uh, pension fund-based uh, lending facility with CalPERS. Um, two things that were important about that, it did provide us with a long-term supply of uh, commercial liquidity facilities, so we don't need to rely on the central bank. Uh, and then in addition, it provided us more right-way risk. And what I mean by that is when you look at bank-committed credit facilities, they are backed by banks and, and, and potentially broker-dealers uh, who, uh, in the event of a uh, crisis impacting the CCP, might also be impacted. Uh, the pension <laughs> fund uh, has a different risk profile, and so in those type of events, uh, their type of the, the, the uh, rigor and the likelihood that they'll be able to fund the credit facility in, and be there for us in a moment of crisis is more likely, and so that's a better uh, outcome for us. You don't want to go, you don't want to have a fire at your house and then find out the fire station ran out of water. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, you want to maybe go to, go to a fire station, you know, it's going to have a water or, you know, go to, you know, yeah, definitely, definitely, uh, uh, you know, it's definitely a good point. Uh, I think, you know, I want to get back to, you know, the, uh, the default fund stuff that you mm -hmm. guys are working on. Cause I know that's something we talked about in the past, but, uh, I think, you know, it's kind of fitting coming from a conference talking about liquidity risk and kind of those concerns because, you know, really the, uh, the, the, the big topic of conversation the past few months, it seems, in the past month has been the event that uh, took place at, uh, at NASDAQ uh, last month. Uh, just to kind of recap for anyone listening to that podcast that isn't aware, which I'm not sure who falls into that camp, um, uh, but uh, if you're not aware, there was a, uh, a margin breach at uh, NASDAQ Commodities, which uh, focuses on the NASDAQ power markets. A member defaulted. It was an individual direct clearing member betting the spread between Nordic and German electricity futures. Um, and they bet that they would narrow and the opposite happened. Uh, so the market move created a 39% loss larger than NASDAQ's margin model. Um, all, to all told, the loss cost 100 114 million euros, um, two-thirds of which came from NASDAQ's uh, default fund, which was uh, funded by the clearing members. NASDAQ's currently hired Oliver Wyman to conduct a review of its risk management practices. So with, with all that out of the way, I wanted to ask you, uh, there's a lot of different things to look at when it comes to the NASDAQ uh, default. Um, you know, I was just at FIA in Chicago last week. Obviously, this is a big topic of discussion. There's, you know, questions around the margin methodology, questions around concentration risk, questions around individual direct clearing members, questions around the auction process. Uh, I guess to start, just kind of overall, what was, what are your initial thoughts or kind of what, what are your, your, your thoughts? What do you think of the overall NASDAQ um, breach and, and, and what occurred? What are your big takeaways now a month removed from the event? Yeah, so I, I'd say first, 
details are still coming out, and, and that's important. Nasdaq and Oliver Wyman need time to really understand and evaluate what's happening. So everything I'll talk about is going to be more on a principal basis. But what I will say is this is kind of the first real event impacting a CCP since the implementation of the PFMIs. Um, and so we got a chance to see how does the framework work, uh, and does it work as intended? And I'd say purely from did the framework from a CCP perspective work to absorb the, the risk event uh, and, and keep contagion from perpetuating? And I'll say, yes, the framework did work. So the CCP was able to absorb the position, uh, distribute uh, the portfolio back into the ecosystem, and then distribute the losses. Um, now, I, I think, let's start bringing it down in a level deeper, uh, is the calibration between what was um, insured by the defaulter himself versus what's mutually insured by the rest of the street properly calibrated. Uh, I think that's where some, the first question would come. So should uh, a default of this magnitude um, have translated into a greater than 50% uh, charge back to the clearing fund. Uh, it, it starts to question the type of an event that happened and what were the kind of stress testing and risk identification capabilities in place. Uh, I, th I think uh, we're, we're talking about moves that haven't been uh, observed in the past. Uh, and really that, that tend, from, from my perspective, tends to focus on your stress testing capabilities, looking at these unique scenarios, uh, and I think properly calibrating what types of loss events should be uh, insured by the mutualized fund versus default or pay. And I think uh, you could uh, consider that this might be one of those areas where more calibration was necessary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, so I guess where do you come down? Because there, there were so many different theories on what is the most important thing to consider following this this crisis, um, you know, is that you think that calibration is that the, the biggest issue to consider? Because some people kind of point to the way the auction was handled. Some people point to just the overall fact that there are individual direct clearing members and how they need to be kind of accounted for. What is? But you, you're saying you think the calibration is the most important thing to consider in the post of this uh, of this event. So I'd say first, uh, I'd, I'd look to the governance. So I, I think if clearing members are depositing. Uh, their resources and ensuring the tail risk of the CCP. Uh, the clearing members need to be part of kind of the governance process and help uh, establish what the risk appetite of the CCP is. So I think having a seat at the table uh, because they are the ones backstopping uh, those tail losses is important. Um, I think skin in the game is a tool that could help uh, provide that alignment of incentives between the CCP uh, in addition to the governance. I think governance is the most important. So if you have your risk uh, appetite calibrated with those who are funding uh, the default losses, uh, that's number one. And then you do want management's uh, incentives aligned. So skin in the game also helps provide that stronger uh, alignment and governance. So I think those are the first two pieces. Um, next, it's, it's then how do you start thinking about these tail type of events and, and margins? Um, is intended to cover um, not normal market circumstances, but potentially not types of circumstances that haven't been observed in the past. Um, so your stress testing framework is intended to look at um, those extreme but plausible and even extreme and maybe not plausible events, um, understanding your losses and are those losses being concentrated within one member and, and should that member really be allowed to, to, to tax um, 
you know, the rest of the mutualized insurance pool to the extent that it was. Um, so I think it's your stress testing framework and your ability to um, prorate potential tail losses back to the defaulting member. Um, the auction process is another interesting thing. I think auctions are, are interesting because um, during a, no default events the same. And so you want CCPs within their policies, procedures, and processes to have flexibility to be able to execute uh, in the way optimal given the circumstances they're dealing with. Um, you can argue whether they had too few or too many uh, folks in the, the auction. Um, I think that uh, ultimately the positions were rather concentrated. And so that makes some challenges for, say, a blind bid type of auction process to work. So looking at different types of auction processes, uh, for example, Dutch auctions would be something where you would incorporate uh, a broader um, uh, breadth of the clearing members participating in the auction. It aligns incentives so that for firms participating aren't uh, are still incented to bid aggressively because they won't be uh, if the auction comes off at a lower price they still get that lower price so it creates the right alignment and incentives there uh, and if you incorporate a juniorization or a seniorization of loss allocation based on did you take down the proportionate share of the book then it also creates alignment there so I think that that's an opportunity for having more tools in the toolbox to apply them in the right context based on the type of default scenario you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the auction in particular is an interesting point. Um, I know one of my colleagues wrote a pretty in-depth piece uh, about it, and uh, I think you're exactly right. It's it's interesting. You have the you know it's the Goldilocks effect, right? Too few, and you feel like oh prices weren't competitive enough. Too many, and oh there's buyer's remorse, and it's kind of you know you're, you the people that are holding the position are at a disadvantage. Um, I've heard you know handling you know well uh, default management, but handling um, the auction in particular had been described as you know kind of uh, um, it's an art. Is that a fair assessment, a fair description of the process, you think? Yeah, I, I'd say it's less of an art. I, I think you do have to evaluate the circumstances. I, I think when, when, when we try to evaluate our own portfolios, generally we have very large, broad markets, not heavy concentrations. Uh, and, and so a sealed bid uh, with a, a, you know, a reasonable amount of auction participants is, is a, a good way, an efficient way to, to distribute the portfolio. If you have a very concentrated position, a smaller market, then you need to, that might not be the optimal way to go. Uh, mm -hmm. And if everybody knows, that it, you know, again, not knowing if how concentrated this individual was, but, um, you know, then other types might be more efficient. Mm -hmm. I think one point that was maybe brought up at the conference and kind of I've heard in discussions I've had was the actual transparency around the auction process. Not necessarily, you know, to your point, I know you, you have to keep certain positions blind, but in terms of how they went about going about things, maybe some people felt not enough information was shared. What's the, you know, speaking as someone at, at a CCP, what is the, the balance there in terms of, you know, letting the industry know the process that's taking place while, you know, there probably are still some confidentiality concerns? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, so I think there's a couple angles. I, I think first, these default events are rare. So when a CCP hosts an auction, it doesn't happen very often. I'll, I'll say from our perspective, we do regular testing, industry testing with our members. So we make um, our clearing members go through a, a and participate in a, 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 a mock auction. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can test it, make sure they're ready, uh, and also identify opportunities that we can enhance the process um, 
between now and the next one. Um, I do think that because even when you have broad participation in testing, it does help improve the process, but you also need to make sure that market participants are aware and reminded of what the process is. So what are we going to follow? How is the auction going to be executed? If it fails, what's the you know, next step, what's the third step? Uh, and just provide that so that during the time of crisis, people don't have to try to remember, uh, but they, they have that at their hands, and so they, uh, they're more prepared. Mm-hmm. Another you know, point that was brought up a lot, specifically in the, um, one of the lead panels that took place on the first day with a lot of the uh, exchange executives was uh, this, you know, the concept of this individual direct clearing member mm-hmm. and how can one person uh, you know, uh, obtain, get such a large position. I think no one, I, I, well maybe I don't want to speak for you or speak for everyone, I don't think anyone feels that the, having direct clearing members is an issue. I think it's when you have these individual basically people mm-hmm. you know, directly interacting with the CCP as opposed to going through a broker. Um, that's where there's some concerns and whether they're necessary, you know, you talk about governance, whether they're necessary governance or parameters around that person. What's your perspective on this, this issue or the concern that maybe some have around um, CCPs having individual direct clearing members? Yeah, I, I think you said it right. I think it's not an issue of having direct clearing members. It is boiled down to the individual, and I think it's the CCP governance to say, what are the parameters, what are the requirements that we would have for an individual to be a member, and making sure that you have the same level of rigor uh, that you have with an individual that you would have with a broker-dealer. Um, there's a lot of, from a systemic perspective, there's a lot of risk that gets absorbed within that broker-dealer uh, model, the, the prime brokerage model. So you've got customer margins, you've got the bank's uh, own capital to absorb losses. So there, there's advantages that come uh, from a systemic perspective of going through that highly regulated um, and, and robust uh, customer protection model um, that that probably could have helped uh, to some extent in in, in the circumstances. Um, so, if you if we're going to allow uh, participation outside of that model, we need to think that that the same level of capital and rigor are there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure. Want to switch gears now? Nasdaq, you know, as it's definitely an important issue for the industry, but I feel like it has been talked about a lot. So. Uh, <laughs> Let's move to uh, something that I actually spoke to you over the summer about, which was uh, change, changes in your uh, clearing fund methodology. Um, so we spoke back in, I believe it was in August about it. Um, some of the highlights include, well, part of it was a move to cover two. Um, you, you previously had been cover one, meaning uh, you covered the default of the of the largest clearing member now under default two, you'd be, you'd be able to cover it under the top two clearing members, your t- two largest clearing members. Um, also, some of the other highlights include switch testing, um, switching to stress testing from trouble margin variance, um, changing your current um, contribution requirements to focus a little more on risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess, so that those changes were put into effect September 4th. So we're on, you know, almost two months now since implementation. What's the latest in terms of kind of implementing this change to your clearing fund methodology? Yeah, I'd, I'd say this has been a, a really positive for us. So one, it allows us to demonstrate that we are covering for the losses of our top two clearing members. So our resiliency is, is, is we can demonstrate it significantly more than, than what we were able to demonstrate before. Um, the stress testing itself, establishing stress tests, so what's your extreme plausible and what are those special stress cases that you're covering for versus a trebling of margin, one of the things we observed in the past is that as market volatility um, increases and, and that volatility regime changes, your margins should be able to change along with that. Uh, and, and when you have your guarantee fund calibrated 
to your margins and your margins can change with volatility, what you've introduced really is procyclicality. And so if your margins are going up uh, and your clearing fund is going up on top of that, what you see is a scaling effect during a period of volatility, uh, which, which actually enhances the risk within the system. Instead, what you want to see is if you're going to enhance your margin deposits, uh, and hold more in the default or pay pool during a time of risk, you should see that your clearing fund exposure should go down, meaning your stress test is the same. Uh, you've decided to hold more in a default or pay model versus a mutualized model, and so your clearing fund stresses should be less in that circumstances. Uh, we did see some volatility in the past uh, couple weeks and, and got to actually see how <laughs> if we calibrated that right, and, and that's what we saw. So we, we did observe that as our margins went up, to kind of help protect against the more recent volatility, our clearing funds remain stable, and, and that's what we're looking for with that. What's that process like? You, you make this massive change, and obviously you, you go through all your checks and balances, um, but to right out the gate to have it tested, is that a, a stressful thing, or is that, okay, you're obviously confident in, the, in what you've put forward, is that, you know what, might as well get it over with now to prove that not only is this strong, but here is going to be evidence right away us testing through the market. What's that like? Yeah, so I'd say we were confident in it. I'd say one of the things we do before we propose the implement the, the new methodology changes uh, was going through extensive back testing. So we would uh, make changes, we would back test it over a two-year period, and we would make sure we had some stress periods within that, and we'd see how did the model react. And then that would cause us to iterate and make some changes and calibrations to it, uh, retest the model. So when we actually filed and got approval and implemented, and we saw the market volatility, while we were very confident in how we thought it would react, it was good to see it actually happen in production. Sure, sure. yeah. The proof is always in the pudding, and it's nice to see it uh, work out. One one thing I wanted to touch on on, on this is uh, you'd mentioned the fact that uh, in the call we had back in over the summer, that despite moving from a cover one to a cover two, that you didn't anticipate costing members, uh, your clearing members, extra money in terms of the contribution to the clearing fund. It was a point that I think my editors had a little tough time wrapping their heads around because it sounds a little counterintuitive. How do you go from covering your biggest clearing member to your two biggest clearing members, but you don't need more money? Can you maybe explain why that that is indeed the case? Yeah, so I think we go back to that our old clearing fund was calibrated to a multiple of our margin calculation. And so if we are sizing, uh, if we're creating basically that sizing stress test to be a, a factor of your margins, uh, and at the time I think we we're in an elevated risk period, our margins were probably uh, excessive. Uh, not our margins were excessive, but the clearing fund uh, stress tests were beyond uh, what we would define as extreme but plausible type of events. And so when we uh, while we felt we had sufficient credit resources to cover our top two, being able to demonstrate that through defining your stress tests, I think defining what those, what is your uh, risk appetite from, a, again, the board and the, the, the board's perspective is saying, well, we are going to cover this type of an event uh, and, and we're going to size to whatever type of event that's in addition to that. Um, so it's really about bringing that infrastructure that's saying, these are the stress tests that the CCP determines as it's within its appetite. Uh, size to that uh, and, and it's really uh, not being a function of your, your margin calibration because your margin should be allowed to be uh, to, to evolve more and be more calibrated to uh, the, the um, volatility regime that you're seeing in the markets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, sure. One change that wasn't made when you made changes to your default fund was uh, OCC's own contribution to the de default fund. Uh, currently, you guys don't contribute to the default fund. I know that you, you just mentioned skin in the game. It's a topic that came up a lot in the wake of the NASDAQ 
breach for, you know, in terms of NASDAQ, they had 7 million of their own euros in as a contribution in their default fund, which was, you know, eaten through pretty quickly. I believe they've upped that amount, but that's only for a temporary period of a, of a certain amount of days. Uh, this is something we talked about uh, when you first made the announcement of changing the clearing fund, but maybe uh, talk me through why you feel it wouldn't be appropriate for OCC to contribute to the default fund. So I'll, I'll say we are considering uh, contributing our own capital into the default waterfall. We do uh, have our own capital up to, to absorb operational risks, mm-hmm. um, but we are also in the process of considering uh, whether or not uh, there's a sufficient portion of, of the, the default pool that, that the CCP should put up as skin in the game. That said, I think our model is a utility model where the clearing members are on our board, have strong governance, and allow us to set the risk appetite, um, provides that level of transparency and oversight uh, of management to make sure that our risk management capabilities and and framework are very robust in protecting their assets. Uh, So, again, going back to my earlier comments about the governance process and making sure that market participants whose resources are exposed through that mutualized pool need to have a seat at the table and that's what we have through our governance process so I think that's number one and the strongest point of ensuring that those resources are adequately protected and the risk framework is sufficient Uh, skin in the game is a supplement to that and it's something that uh, we are seriously considering uh when when it's what led to that because i if i remember correctly when we had discussed this back in august i kind of asked you and you you made similar points which are definitely fair um but you it didn't seem like that was uh, an option that you were seriously considering it did something has something changed since then as the the events at nasdaq or anything specifically that to make you guys reconsider uh skin in the game no i, I think it's always about uh trying to make sure that market participants have the top uh, level of confidence in their CCP. Uh, we are one of the few that do not uh, contribute skin in the game, and providing that same alignment of incentives, I think, just reinforces and, and makes our framework stronger. So, then that's really impetus. And that's something that you said you, you're seriously considering now? Yes. yes. It, it, would you say more so than in, in years past? That you, it's really taken a maybe. You know, it's something obviously that you guys probably always discuss in your meetings and maybe hear from clearing members, but would you say more so has it taken a little bit more of a, a focus or a spotlight for you? Uh, I'd say not no more so. I think as from a priority perspective, um, it, it's just come up as the kind of the next thing where we think we can add resilience to our overall framework. Sure. Is there any, would you look to model your contribution after any specific uh, other CCP or would you kind of do it proprietary on your own in terms of how you would decide what the right calculation, what the right amount is. I think calibration is the real challenge, is understanding how to calibrate that right for the CCP, for the model, uh, whether you're for-profit or utility-based. So we are evaluating other CCPs and how they've gone about trying to size their their default capital contributions, and and we're going to take that into account in, in determining our own. What's the? Have you discussed this at all with uh, clearing members? What's the feedback? Or you know, you talk about governance and kind of what's been the feedback from them about this potentially? Um, it's still in the early stages, so I think we're we're looking to to uh, create our own proposal, and then then we'll, we'll clearly have that outreach with our members. They're they're a key stakeholder and, and some whose opinions we value strongly. Sure, sure. And any specific timeline or still kind of early stages in the works? Still early stages. Yeah, sure. You, you talk about default funds. You kind of the. The yin, yin to the yang is the margin calculation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we had talked uh, earlier, earlier over the summer. So we'd reported um, Q1 uh, OCC had suffered uh, 30, 38 breaches with an average size of 61.4 million. Um, you know, that was something that stood out to us just because your previous average breach size 
you know, highest had been $9.4 million. Um, there also, you know, it was reported that the SEC and CFTC was investigating the way OCC was calculating margin requirements. Uh, I know you can't speak to that directly, um, but, you, you know, we did have a conversation just about your margin calculation in general and, and why you, you, you want to stand by it. I guess the, the, the most important thing up front would be to say that while you did suffer 38 breaches, that was still within your confidence level. Um, kind of just in, in general, maybe can you talk to me a little about, you know, in the wake of those breaches, why you, you guys were still happy with your, your margin methodology? Yeah, I, I think when you look at your assessing the, the robustness and rigor of your margin methodology, you have to have a longer time horizon. You can't just look at a point in time. Um, our margins... Uh, from a regulatory perspective, our margin backtesting uh, needs to surpass 99%. Uh, we're actually backtesting to a 99.9%. So we're, we're really uh, well within kind of the acceptable limits uh, of how the margin model should be performing. That said, you, you do, you backtest for a purpose. You, you try to identify where there might be opportunities to identify tail events. Have you calibrated those tail events properly between your margin and your guarantee fund? Uh, and, and so I think that's what we really look to take advantage of those opportunities where we do see margin breaches, uh, reevaluate, uh, and think about uh, where we might want to make enhancements. But I'll say that our margin uh, methodology, again, backtesting at a 99.9% uh, coverage, is doing what we anticipate it to be doing. And so these opportunities give us uh, the chance to just reevaluate the overall framework. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One thing you had mentioned when we chatted was uh, considering making changes to end-of-day prices. I think in Q1 you said some of the volatility you saw with some of those breaches was occurring at end-of-day trading. Is that still a consideration? Any progress there or any, any thoughts on making changes to end-of-day pricing? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that you know that particular incident, so February 5th happened at the period between 3 and 3.15. Um, that, that's a key point for us because it's the point when we try to extract our end-of-day closing prices. Those end-of-day closing prices and option marks then feed our downstream processes as far as evaluating what our uh, option volatilities are and then the rest of our downstream risk management processes. Um, what we observed is that given the, the uncertainty with the prices between 3 and 3.15, the quality was a little bit suspect at the time. Spreads were very wide. Um, and, and it caused us to kind of reflect and say, okay, should we think about do we, do we pull our extracts and determine the spreads at a time when markets are still actively trading and, and uh, so earlier in the day, say a 2.58 type of time frame? Um, what types of uh, algorithms could we implement in the cleansing of our option prices to make sure that we have arbitrage-free prices, which is going to provide, provide better vol surfaces and ultimately uh, help enhance our, our downstream processes. So those are things we're, we're researching as far as how can we, uh, during these type of periods, make sure that the option prices that we're ultimately feeding as the foundation for our risk management systems are uh, optimal and uh, the cleanest quality data as possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just in, in general, you talk, you know, you guys are at the 99.9% confidence level. When managing, uh, you know, margin and margin calculation, just risk management in general, what's that balance like between your actual initial margin and, and those those kind of requirements intraday and, and liquidity add-ons, and then also on the back end, that default fund? Because I know, you know, like you say, you protect up to a certain amount, and then if there is default, then that's the default fund is supposed to kind of sit there as the protection of the tail risk. What's mm -hmm. that balance? between the two sides. Yeah, so today we, we probably have in, in slightly in excess of $100 billion in margin collateral, mm -hmm. uh, and we have approximately $10 billion uh, in clearing fund deposits. And so that's kind of the calibration between kind of the default or pay versus the, uh, the, uh, the, the mutually insured pools. Um, 
And again, you know, the 99%, 99.9% is actually an indication that our margins do a very good job of covering uh, a, a lot of, uh, of the exposure that we observe. Uh, and then as we look at the potential losses that were outside of that, how do they feel, fall within uh, our guarantee fund adequacy? And, and from, from that perspective, uh, the calibration looks well. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- one kind of thing is we're, we're finishing up here. The uh, CCP's kind of role and confidence in the market, specifically when it comes to uh, digital currency, right? We're seeing a lot of uh, increased interest in digital currency over the past year or so. Obviously, you guys clear uh, contracts for SIBO, which has a Bitcoin futures contract. Um, talk about the role that you see CCPs playing um, for digital currency derivatives as they kind of become more, you know, a topic that more people are interested in, a product that more people are interested in. Yeah, I, I think what you're finding right now is cryptocurrencies are in the early stages of their their life cycle. I think they are trying to um, serve as a storage of value uh, and and as a risk management tool. You, for folks that are uh, transacting in that, they're looking for risk management tools to help mitigate the, the risk. I think from a CCP perspective, we really serve as that cornerstone. So how do we, through our robust risk management, not only financial risk, but operational risk, provide certainty in the back-end trading platforms? I think your, your exchanges like CBOE uh, who have listed derivatives contracts are are really trying to help uh, bring price discovery uh, and and price certainty to that asset class and having a strong CCP behind them to help uh, make sure that the the foundational elements are strong and people have confidence to transact in those uh, contracts um, is, is key to ultimately providing the base building block so that a Bitcoin or some type of cryptocurrency can be a viable uh, uh, vehicle for storage of value long term. Uh, but CCPs, the confidence that CCPs ultimately bring can help start the conversation. And then as, as more of the institutional capital markets uh, rigor gets applied to it, you, hopefully what you see is that the, uh, the, the asset class itself starts to mature uh, and it gets some it's sustainability. What, what's it like from... Uh, CCP perspective. So, you know, last almost a year ago now, or actually, I guess over a year, there was the announcement regarding, um, you know, the launch of these these products in terms of the Bitcoin futures from CME and SIBO. You guys clearing for CBOE. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it like to try to, you know, there was a lot of attention around what was the initial margin for these going to be? How are they going to be risk managed? From your perspective, dealing with uh, something that there's not a ton of historical data on, What's that process like and how different is it? Because I'm sure, you know, we will see, we've already seen two new futures, Bitcoin future contracts launched. I'm sure we'll see derivatives on other uh, digital currencies in time. What's it like trying to properly risk manage against a product that is so new? And so, you know, um, uh, I don't know what to say, well, I guess you, you could say it's not mature, it's an immature product. What is that like? How is it like to risk manage for something that is so fresh? Yeah, I, I think so. On one hand, your margin models uh, are largely based on historical data, but you can calibrate the level of conservativeness in those. I will say during that time, we, we were able to get a good period where the Bitcoin contracts went up. The, the volatility in price was significant. <laughs> so that kind of helped uh, provide some some uh, conservativeness in our models. Mm-hmm. So from, from a financial risk perspective, uh, I think we were able to have sufficient level of 
uh, price volatility uh, built within that helped our, our models ultimately be conservative because I think in the initial launch we want to be conservative. Um, I'd, I'd say the other component of it, thinking more broadly from a risk perspective, is the operational risks. So have we thought about uh, are we um, – Clearing these as cash settled or physically settled, and and our if we're if you're clearing it in a physical, our contracts are cash settled. But if they're physically settled, do you have the right uh, uh, rigor from your cyber resilience from the custody perspective, and and being able to uh, recover from a potential event and still stand behind those contracts? Uh, price discovery was was another point. Again, going back to clean prices that are feeding your models, and and what happens if you have an outage with the uh, your your pricing uh, source. And so those were the, I'd say, the additional risks that we considered, not just the financial risks, the obvious risks, but more your operational risks and how do we make sure that we're also providing operational resilience in addition to the financial resilience. Yeah, you mentioned uh, settlement. I think that's an interesting point because we've just seen now over the past few months the announcement of ICE and RSX that are launching uh, Bitcoin futures that will be physically settled. Uh What's your, you know, you guys obviously, like you said, you cash settle currently. Um, do you see that? Do you see? Would would you guys physically settle? Did you look into physically physical settlement? Um, how big of a hurdle is it compared to cash settled? How do they differ in terms of from a risk perspective, the issues or the concerns that you have as a CCP and trying to handle both? Yeah, I, I, I do think what you're what you're doing from a physical settlement perspective is making sure that you can custody these securities and you can protect those assets. Um, OCC uh, serving as a clearinghouse, we typically rely on depositories for that for our current assets. So we rely on DTC uh, to deposit as serve as the depository for our, our stock assets and and uh, Bank of New York and other uh, government securities depositories for our, our treasuries. Um, so I, I think that's the trick. And and I think between ARSX and and ICE's um, implementations, have they found the proper way to be able to uh, custody those assets, protect those assets in the event that uh, they are uh, impacted by uh, ransomware, that they have the uh, recovery processes to be able to uh, quickly restore and make sure and, and provide confidence that those assets are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, I think the, the digital currency aspect is interesting because it's one thing to have a, you know, a grain elevator or something, you know, in the Midwest. It's another thing, you know, holding on to Bitcoins. Is that you, you said, you know, when there's kind of initial conversations about physical or cash settlement, do, have you guys looked at physical settlement? Is it something you guys, uh, a route you guys would be willing to go down if someone wanted to clear a contract with you that was physically settled in terms of digital currency? Yeah, I think we'd look to have to look at that service and make sure that we can stand behind and have confidence behind that, that custody process. Uh, mm-hmm. That That's where the risk is. Sure. And sure. so to the extent we could get comfortable with that, that's what we'd be um, evaluating. Sure. Last thing I want to kind of finish up with is uh, – you know, it's a uh, one of my old colleagues, uh, Anthony Malikian, used to ask it a lot to profiles, and it's kind of a cheesy question, but what keeps you up at night, right? You're the chief risk officer for you know a massive CCP. I'm sure there are a lot of things that keep you up at night, but what what are kind of the biggest concerns, the most pressing concerns? For a CRO at a CCP, yeah, I, I you know I think the obvious ones are your financial risks, so your credit market liquidity risks. But I'd say there's a lot of focus on that. There's been a lot of focus on that for a number of years, and so I think we've got very strong processes in that space, and and where we have a lot of confidence. I'd say it's some of the new risks. I'd say operational risks, and really the operational resilience of a CCP, because on one hand you can be impacted by a financial issue uh, with one of your members, uh, but I'd say uh, what what's what 
what's also important for the CCP is demonstrating operational resilience. So when we start thinking about cyber risk management and making sure that the CCP has a strong framework to protect and res uh, respond and recover from a cyber event, that that's top on my list. Um, our business continuity and recovery plans, that's second on my list. Uh, and then start thinking about, if we go down the, the chain, uh, our third party. So there's a lot of third parties that we um, uh, incorporate within to our, our processes and to the extent that we have risks to them, making sure that our third parties are strong and we can count on them as well. So I'd say uh, really outside of the financial risk where we have a lot of attention, focusing on our operational resilience and, and that that's kind of the next area of focus for us. I don't, I don't know how you catch any sleep with all those worries, all that <laughs> stuff running through your head. It must be uh, it must be tough to get any shut-eye. <laughs> you got a good team around you that, that, that follows the good process. Yeah. Well, listen, John, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to pop in here and, and chat with us. This was, uh, this was great. So thanks so much for, for coming in today. No, it's great, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thank you.